But on, on Napier Barracks in particular, when people make the point about soldiers, I've had emails from soldiers who say it was really bad for us and we hated it. So I think this narrative of it was good for our soldiers, it should be good for these ungrateful refugees is completely untrue. It is unsafe, it broke the law and people shouldn't be living in those conditions. That's it, that's it, full stop. Okay, so hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. Um, this is episode 12 of what's been a, an amazing Coventry Welcomes Festival. Um, we're really delighted that the, the Herbert Art Gallery could host us again. And I'm delighted to welcome Zara Sultano, MP. Thank you so much. Um, you've, you've won Coventry South and now represent um, a very diverse community in, um, in Coventry. Let's talk about what's brought you to politics because you're very young. Yes. Um, what is it that formed in your childhood that's made you want to, to, be, to participate in politics and to run and become an MP? So I was born in a very diverse, born and raised in a very diverse multicultural part of inner city Birmingham, not too far away from Coventry. And I was shaped by what I saw um, and what I experienced. So the school that I went to, um, a state comprehensive, amazing teachers really um, brought out the best in their students. But I also saw the way that others in society saw us. So I vividly remember an experience where a senior police officer who had never visited my school uh, went to Birmingham City Council and said that every child in that school would be able to tell you which gang they're going to end up in when they're older. Really? So I looked at that and thought, no matter how hard I work, or no matter how hard my classmates work, yeah. no matter what grades we get, there will be some people in positions of power who will look at our postcode, who will look at the colour of our skin, who will look at the type of school we go to mm -hmm. and automatically think that we are determined for some kind of life um, uh, which is, you know, uh, criminal, illegal. And I think that really angered me. And then I think in, in, in my story per se, I think there's a lot of things that angered me. Um, mm. I'm not sure if that comes across in Parliament now. I'm quite angry about <laughs> things. Um, but again, um, another moment, I guess, um, sig of significance was the tripling of tuition fees. Yeah. So I had always felt like politics was happening to me and my generation. And I saw, you know, the Liberal Democrats promising to scrap tuition fees, only to go into a coalition government and triple them with the Conservatives. And they paid an electoral price for that, which the Tories didn't. Um, but when I went to university, I then was paying £9,000 a year. Yeah. I now have around forty-five to £50,000 of student debt, which I'm paying every year, but it grows exponentially because the interest is just mad. Mm. And I felt like that was a generation of politicians who were punishing my generation for being young and denying us the rights and opportunities that they benefited from. So yeah. it really felt like a personal attack. Yeah. And when I went to university, 
I got involved with the, the, the movement for free education on campus, the Black and Ethnic Minority Association, Kashmir and Palestine societies, because I just wanted to see how I could channel that anger, but also the passion for social justice and, and equality into things. So that was kind of foundational to it all. No, that's, that's very interesting. Is there anything, because obviously you're, you're an Asian woman, um, is there anything about your background in that your, is it your great grandparents, is it your grandparents who were the first migrants here? So my granddad moved in the early 60s uh, to work in the foundry in the black country. So they, they were part of that migration pattern that coincided with a lot of the Windrush generation okay. um, moving to, there, were, there was migration that took place to the mills in the north. Mm -hmm. And then it was the factories in the Midlands. And it was mainly a lot of men who had first moved who were living together in very cramped housing, mm -hmm. um, who were then you know finding jobs, working hard, sending money back home, and then my grandma came and then my dad was born here so it was that that migration story okay um, is there anything in in your grandparents story that sort of made you politically conscious at, at the time of course I heard stories of the kind of experiences that they had racism um, the kind of housing that they had to live in um, my granddad also joined the TNG union in the foundry uh, so I learned about you know trade unionism not in, in in a substantial way but that he was a member and it was really important for people to be in unions but equally because I didn't learn about unions at school and it wasn't something I really digged into it was when I started working in retail so I've worked in Primark for two years and then I worked in H&M and I feel like it gave me a thick skin to be able yeah. to put up or deal with a lot and I always say everyone should work in retail at some point because it changes you or it gives you something um, but when I when I was working there that's when I joined a union that's where I was able to uh, really pick up so much learning in terms of fighting for better work and pay um, and knowing what it means to be part of a collective Mm -hmm. So I think that goes back to, I guess, my granddad being um, a union member. And, you know, I think of the things within my community now and the, the struggles of that generation, what they had to put up with or endure, but also the institutions that they built, the mosques that they built, the community centers that they built, the relationships that they had with their neighbors. Mm -hmm. it, it gave me and my generation, I think, uh, a stronger footing. And I always say, even in politics today, when I look at people like Diane Abbott and I hear the stories about Bernie Grant and others, we are literally standing on the shoulders of giants. We couldn't have done this by ourselves. Yeah. They, they fought, they struggled, people died, and now we're able to have this conversation, I guess. Yes, and so now you, you have a front seat um, and you, see, you sit on those green benches in Parliament what do you make of, of the way that this, this country is governed and the Conservative Party has an has a 80-seat majority? Do you sort of feel that your politics has kind of been rejected by the electorate? It's a really interesting question. I'll start off with what it's like to be on those green benches. And the first time I sat on the green benches after being elected, and I could see, at the time, Sajid Javid was still Chancellor, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, and for a moment I just had to like sit there and pinch myself to be like, I'm here. Yeah. And I, I had to do that because then I had to get over any kind of 
fear or any kind of inferiority complex because I have a job to do. Yeah. I can't be phased by seeing, you know, these people that I recognize from the news and I recognize from faces on posters and banners at demos cussing them. Yeah. I, I have to deal with the job at hand. And I was actually sitting next to Hillary Benn and he just saw me pinch myself and he was like, yeah. you got this. Um, and then since then, it's because I think at first it was just really, I had to process it because these people, the conservative government, these politicians have inflicted so much harm, so much devastation. Sorry. That's all right. Um, you know, you're really passionate about, about representing people and, and fighting for their struggles, so it's completely understandable that, that you react in that way. You think a year on, a year and a half on, I'd be like slightly more composed about when I when I talk about how I feel about them, um, and it's because people have died, right? It's like politics has consequences, policy has consequences. When you're pushing policy forward that denies people the right to the benefits that they deserve, and they die, that's blood on your hands. When you have delayed lockdowns and you're not giving people the financial support to stay at home, and you're forcing them into unsafe working conditions and they die you have blood on your hands so i can't separate that yeah no it's it's very it's a very difficult um, issue when people are really suffering and you're there to represent them and they come to your constituency office and they need s different kind of assistance yeah um some of the responses that you, you get regards, say, universal credit yes. and those type of things that are affecting your, your constituents. Um, how do you reconcile the 80-seat majority then? I think all of us who are in the Labour Party have accepted that it's very hard to pass any legislation because of that 80 seat majority. But my background in, in, in the movement, in coming through the student movement, in being a community organizer and having you know, a sheer love for working people who have fought for every single right that we have today. Yeah. You know, the NHS, we fought for that. The weekend, we fought for that. We need to fight for a four day working week. Um, all of these things that we, we might take for granted today it wasn't because the ruling class had a change of heart and they suddenly thought actually let's be kind to people absolutely not that's because people fought for them so I know where power lies and while you know some people might think you know and it's called the, the corridors of power the power is in the streets and the power is in the streets and and they know it too and that's why they're trying to criminalize it so when we look at legislation like the police crackdown bill which will literally undermine the right of people to be able to protest and gives the Home Secretary even more powers. It expands stop and search, which discriminates against black people, particularly young black men. All of these things which are, are horrible and, and shouldn't be the case. They are attacking our right to protest because they know that's how we win when we come together. And in the future, when we see more effects of climate breakdown, when we have the highest rates of unemployment that we've not seen before, all of these societal crises coming together, people are going to be angry and people are going to be angry in the streets. And that's why they are 
they are setting up for that. They are laying the, the groundwork to stop people from doing that because the people will want people to be accountable. They will want the government to be held accountable. So they're criminalizing it right now, kind of seeing that coming. So you've, you've got a lot of battles that you've, you've got to fight ahead of you. Um, let's move on to slightly easier territory. <laughs> um, we're celebrating 70 years of the Refugee Convention that was signed in Geneva in 1951. So Britain has always welcomed refugees and people who've come here to seek protection over a very long period of time. Um, often we see on our television screens now people who are arriving through the channel by boat. What that's done is the Home Secretary has has this new immigration plan. What this new immigration plan does is it gives people status dependent on their mode of arrival. So anyone who arrives by boat will no longer be recognized as a refugee. I wondered as we, as we gather here and we're celebrating Refugee Week and um, Coventry being the city of culture and being a city of sanctuary that has really welcomed a lot of people here. What do you make of these plans and these proposals that, that Pretty Patel is making? I think they're inhumane. I think they are rooted in evil um, because they, they refuse you to... You think see they're rooted in evil? Yeah, I think it's evil. I think we shouldn't be ashamed to say that there are policies that the government is pushing forward that are evil and that will harm people, that will you know, bring more suffering and misery and death to people. When we look at the migration journeys that people take that force them into the channel, they are because we are not providing them with safe and legal routes. And the government will talk about, um, you know, uh, people who are profiting from this and, um, you know, how it's, um, it's going to make people more safe. No, it's not. Unless you're talking about safe and legal routes, you're not making people safe. People will always, throughout history, make journeys if they think that they are going to a place of more safety. And I will always think of Wilson Shire's poem where, it's, where, she, where she talks about, you know, um, we don't put children um, on a boat unless the water is safer than the land. And I think I've like butchered it, but off the top of my head, that's kind of how it goes. Um, but, but people don't make those decisions lightly. They don't leave their lives behind and put everything in a carrier bag um, because you know, they, they think um, it's gonna be easy, but it's because they value life and they love life and they wanna fight for life. And we have a government that doesn't recognize their humanity. So I think that's evil. And um, when, when she talks about, when Preeti Patel talks about what's happening in the channel, and I, I just find it so difficult to comprehend because she is someone whose family also had to flee um, and, and seek refuge. And Her you are literally- came from Uganda. Exactly, and then to put up walls, to deny people the right, which is something enshrined in international law. It's something that she shouldn't be able to even, you know, contemplate, let alone implement, um, I think is, is disgusting. And I think that's why it's so important that across society, whether it's migrant groups, whether it's trade unions, political parties, 
musicians, absolutely everyone, academics, needs to be united on this, that we need to protect our commitment to the Refugee Convention. You know, this, this country has a complex history when it comes to refugees. During the Holocaust, um, it was a fight for people to um, be able to come um, fleeing, fleeing the Nazis, and there was the kinder transport, and, you yeah. know, Lord Dobbs has been trying to get this government to allow the, the safe passage of children. And even that has been mm. a, a hard fight. Um, and I think, you know, when it comes to what kind of country are we? Mm. How are we treating the most marginalized and most vulnerable in society? And there's a quote that I think many people over history have talked about, but the way you treat the most marginalized in society, that is a reflection of who you are as a country and as a society. And I think if we look at the way we treat homeless people, if we look at, well, when I say we, I mean the government, right? Yeah. Because the people and the government, I think we need to be able to differentiate, but the way this government treats homeless people, the way this government treats refugees and asylum seekers, tells you a lot about who they are and what they stand for. And it's something that they get away with because they have the support of the press. And mm. in this country, two billionaires control a third of the press. Mm. And when we look at the kind of messaging that we get from our newspapers, which is always talking about, you know, refugees invading, um, you know, people stealing your jobs, but then also on benefits and all of this stuff, it's because they realize that if we use this community of people who are completely and utterly, you know, disenfranchised because they don't have the vote, but also incredibly vulnerable because they are fleeing or they're seeking safety, if we can blame societal ills on them, unemployment, housing waiting lists, NHS waiting lists, all of these, you know, school place uh, shortages on these people, then if we allow people to be distracted and blame them for everything, then they're not, they're not going to be blaming us. Mm. I wonder what you get in your, your constituency mailbag. Um, are your constituents worried about, about refugees coming here? Or, or what's, what's the general tenor of what you receive? The bulk of my casework is generally people who um, are fighting with the DWP to get the benefits. There are people who are worried about their jobs. There are people who are fighting for better quality housing while coming to us saying, can you help us with this? When I look at policy casework, and you know, some journalists have been trying to catch me out on points when I say, BLM was the highest policy casework load that I had, and that was only recently topped by people who were writing in concerned about what was happening to the Palestinians. And they were like, how do you prove it? I'm like, GDPR exists. I can't send you every single email I've ever got. Like, that's not how it works. Yeah. Um, but that tells me that I represent a constituency that is passionate about social justice, that cares about the world that we live in. And that's what I get from policy casework. And then my, um, my casework is, is people who just want our economy and our society to respect them, to treat them with dignity. Why are we having a situation where their basic needs aren't met? And that, that's generally what I get in, in my inbox. Okay, now let's, let's talk about um, an issue that you raised in Parliament quite recently. So Priti Patel, apart from um, changing this, this asylum policy to what she wants it to be now, has been housing people who come across the channel at, at Napier Barracks. And what she says is that if that accommodation 
isn't good, good enough. Is good enough for soldiers who who serve this country, then that accommodation is is good enough for people who come to seek sanctuary. You've had an issue with that, so talk to us about about your reasoning about that, because I I, I suspect that your constituents may be interested to to know what that spat with Priti Patel is, because it's been quite prominent. I think everyone can tell that me and Priti Patel don't like each other. And that's an understatement. And I think that's great, because why should I like someone who represents a politics that I despise, yeah. um, which is harming people, and which is actively really, you know, um, causing much harm and devastation. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm proudly socialist, um, so there's absolutely no shame about that whatsoever because I believe in a world that treats everyone with rights and respect and dignity across borders. And even my mask that I have from Migrants Organize says solidarity knows no borders, yeah. um, but Preeti Patel loves borders, so. What can we do there? Um, but on, on Napier Barracks in particular, when people make the point about soldiers, I've had emails from soldiers who say, it was really bad for us and we hated it. Hmm. So I think this narrative of it was good for our soldiers, it should be good for these ungrateful refugees mm -hmm. is completely untrue. Mm -hmm. It is unsafe, it broke the law, mm -hmm. and people shouldn't be living in those conditions. That's it that's it full stop and you know the fact that there were cases there was an outbreak there there were people over 20 people cramped in these conditions she was saying that she was following PHE advice but then also saying that she was listening to PHE advice all of this kind of like confusing language which the the, the essence of it is is that the home secretary did not follow public health advice and a high court ruled that it was against the law. Therefore, in any other situation, in previous governments, that would be enough for the Home Secretary to step down and resign. She has misrepresented the facts unintentionally, those are the words that I have to use, um, in Parliament. But it's shocking because you've had a government that's given billions of pounds of taxpayers' money in dodgy COVID contracts to their friends. Yeah. There is connections where people have been um, given contracts and then have donated money to the Conservative Party very soon after. In any other country, we would be using language like corruption, uh, but we're not, um, because how is that still legal? How is this, how is this okay? Um, so you've, you've got the, the dodgy COVID contracts, you've got Preeti Patel um, as Home Secretary, who, you know, a court, a high court judge, not Zara Sultana, a high court mm. judge has ruled that you've broken the law with the way you've treated people in Napier Barracks and still it's open, still there's people there and you're still not telling people how many people are in a dormitory. Mm. It's outrageous. And then that's just the tip of the iceberg when we look at all of these other things that we're hearing about how this is not a functioning government. It's mm. chaos. And you can't have chaos in normal circumstances, let alone in a pandemic, where you actually need people to trust the people who are running this country. Yeah. Um, Coventry has welcomed a lot of people who came from, from the Caribbean um, to come and help rebuild this country. Sadly, we saw what happened with Windrush. The Labour Party hasn't been absolutely clear about 
about the compensation scheme because it's been at least two years now since that scandal happened where people who had the right to be in this country were sent back to, to countries that they had never been to for a really long time. I wonder what you make of the whole Labour Party's general view on, on immigration, because we don't hear that much from Keir Starmer on immigration. Will you not touch that? Because the electorate have voted to end free movement um, post-Brexit. I think when it comes to the Windrush generation and their experiences with the Home Office, with a compensation scheme, I think the party, um, to be completely fair, has been speaking up, has been mentioning how very few people have received the compensation that they deserve, how people have died before they've received compensation, how you know the process isn't um, as good and as strong as it should be. So I, I think sitting in the chamber and seeing how MPs and the front bench have, have called the, um, Preeti Patel and the Home Secretary to account on that um, is, is true. However, I think we can always be more confident and more uh, forthcoming in our support of uh, migrants and refugees, and I think we shouldn't shy away from that. And I think you know the Labour Party's base in particular, if we talk about our members, they care about this issue. We know that we have strong support within the Caribbean society and no community should be taken for granted, um, whether that's young people, whether that's Muslim people, whether that's Jewish people. No, you know, the, the, the Labour Party can only win elections if it has a coalition of progressives that support it. And you made a previous point about um, just, just kind of backtracking about um, a certain politics being um, uh, refused because we didn't win the election. Mm. I think we have to look at 2019 in a particular lens through Brexit, and we can also compare that to 2017. And in 2017, the Labour Party's vote share was the highest it has been since 1945. Mm. And you know, if if they we say um, if we had an election, if if the election was several weeks later, if we had you know just a few more weeks, then maybe we could have even entered government. And I think no one saw that coming, and that's because. The, the politics under Jeremy Corbyn, or the, the politics that we had in that manifesto, spoke to people's material needs. We need, we need good quality jobs. We need to invest in our communities. We need to invest in the NHS. And this was pre-pandemic. A lot of those things have been vindicated. That austerity meant that we were on a worse footing and our NHS was not as prepared as it should have been because of austerity. All of those arguments um, you know, uh, they, they, there was another light shone on them with the pandemic, but people voted in huge numbers. Young people voted in huge numbers for that manifesto. In 2019, because of the way the party was voting electorally, we were suddenly seen as an establishment party, whereas previously we had this anti-establishment vibe, which completely changed. And there were loads of people, regardless of whether they voted to leave or remain, who were saying, for a functioning democracy, we need to respect the vote, so we just need to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that the party um, shouldn't have you know, got into those kind of electoral kind of uh, maneuverings and whatnot, which, which really disadvantaged us. But mm -hmm. if we look at the manifestos of 2017, 2019, I think they're brilliant 
to work on, to build on. They're not an end point, but they're a brilliant starting point. And it's the kind of stuff that we need to still be fighting for. We need to be fighting uh, to invest in our public services. We need to end tuition fees. We need to build millions of council homes. We need to address the climate emergency through a green industrial revolution. Nothing has changed on those issues at all. That's, that's fascinating. Um, Coventry is um, full of a lot of young people and it's got a very vibrant scene around here, the university and things like that. As we celebrate the, the city of culture, which, which runs until May 22, I wonder, what do you think the cultural scene is like? Do you think that there is a place um, particularly given we're celebrating Refugee Week for, for migrants and refugees to make contribution to, to what we see around here. Absolutely. When we think of the history of nightclubs, mm. Coventry has such an important historical role there. When we look at two-tone music, the selector, the specials, even music now, you know, when we think of people like Pasalia, yeah. when we think of J1, um, when we think of all of these people who are coming through, um, you know, Coventry, and obviously, you know, Coventry has, has Birmingham that has historically just been seen as like a bigger city with more going on, completely not true. When we yeah. look at the organizations here that are, um, you know, including um, organizations for migrants celebrating culture like Malquo, um, there's so much going on and I think the fact that we're having this event talking about the contribution refugees and migrants make to Coventry, I think City of Culture is putting a special emphasis on showcasing that because it's so important. It's a young city, it's a diverse city, it's really shaking up the scenes in music, even in culture when we look at the Albany, the Belgrade, there are anchor institutions here as well as so much more going on and I think that is something that we have to showcase. It's a very humble city, yeah. it doesn't like to you know brag about itself like some others, yeah. no shade to any other cities <laughs> in the UK but you know there's, there's so much going on and it's beautiful and I think as an MP I have a special responsibility to highlight that but I think we all do. I think we should show off Coventry the way it should be shown off. And post-COVID, well, we're, we're still in COVID. I, I noticed that you you were vaccinated. I was vaccinated uh, today. Woo! Today and, uh, <laughs> um, how are you feeling? About any, being vaccinated? Any, any side effects at all? Well, or? I mean, I think some people might listen to this and think that I'm actually going through a side effect right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But for me, what was really exciting about getting vaccinated is one, I've been seeing everyone else get vaccinated with their cards and I'm just like, when's my turn? Um, but equally in Parliament, I've been sitting on the select committee for the science and technology select committee. Mm. And um, which was, I was just put on that by the whips and it's been a total blessing in disguise. And through that select committee, we've been able to talk to professionals from across the world, but including in the UK. So there was um, sessions that we were having very early on in the pandemic. So let's talk about March 2020, April 2020, where yeah. people were talking about the prospect of having a vaccine and the trials that were gonna be taking place and all of these you know, different things. And now, you know, I kind of feel like it's kind of full circle, but not quite because we, we're not there yet, but 
to, to have heard all of those conversations, to have been able to talk to some of the, those professionals. Mm -hmm. And then even, you know, some, some things that weren't working. So I've been really keen to highlight like how are homeless people, undocumented people, um, how we're gonna make sure that they're able to access, access the vaccine. How are we gonna be able to make sure that people don't feel like if they go through the NHS, um, you know, they can have border police knocking on their doors. How can we ensure that people's safety is first, not their immigration status? And that's been really important for me to, to do on, on the select committee, um, as well as other kind of nooks and crannies of the vaccination process, but also the pandemic as a whole. So I feel like very, to put it shortly um, uh, or briefly, I think it's just nice to be part of that journey now to be like, I've got yeah. a vaccine. And it, it literally speaks to amazing scientists, yeah. investment mm -hmm. from the taxpayer in this science. Mm -hmm. So this vaccine belongs to all of us. And also it belongs to the rest of the world as well, because we're not safe until everyone's safe. So that's why I also think it's really important to talk about int intellectual property yeah. and how that is literally like how um, uh, pharmaceuticals are able to hold monopolies and make profit mm -hmm. and there's so many parts of the global south where vaccination rates are so low so we could be celebrating here you know 95% of adults have had a vaccination or two vaccinations mm -hmm. but unless the rest of the world is also getting vaccinated at high rates then the risk of variants and you know the pandemic being elongated still mm -hmm. exists so I think we need to be talking about how are we making sure this is equitable mm -hmm. and how are we not you know, being complicit in hoarding supply and hoarding some of that, um, some of the materials and some of the, the knowledge behind it. And I think that's why we need to scrap IP patents when it comes to vaccines. Yeah. What, what the COVID-19 pandemic has done is it's completely changed the way that we, we live our lives. You'll, you'll notice in our audience here, there's people are socially distanced, but some of them are wearing masks, um, which shows a degree of anxiety about about our lives and so there's this complete change and i wonder what you make of the government's everyone in program so when the when the pandemic struck homelessness literally ended in coventry everybody was put into all those people who were homeless were put into accommodation some have been staying in hotels this program has now come to an end. What will you be doing as, as the Coventry South MP to make representations for, for people who, whose homeless situation, whose, whose situation regarding their homes is still precarious because there isn't a certain policy which, which keeps those people in housing? What everyone in showed is that when the government wants to, it can make huge policy decisions that end homelessness, like you said. So the fact that it doesn't do that outside of a pandemic should speak volumes that it's literally about political will. And people will use arguments like, we don't have enough money. Yes, we do. If we look at um, how much you know, tax avoidance and tax evasion takes place, um, how the government creates these little corporate sweetheart deals with huge businesses like Google and Amazon, there's enough wealth in this country to make sure that everyone has a roof over their heads, that people don't have to worry about whether they have food at night. Um, you know, all of these anxieties about, will my job pay enough for me to pay the bills? Yeah. We could address all of this. And I think the pandemic response, especially when it came to homelessness, showed that. Mm -hmm. And 
in terms of my representations as, as an MP, I've also highlighted the everyone in program to say, if you can do this in a pandemic, why can't you do it when we're not in a pandemic? Yeah. And when we think about the climate emergency, the kind of response we need to that is gonna be huge on a huge scale. And the government will have to respond because the cost of not doing it is even worse. Yeah. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking we have a choice. With the pandemic, we soon saw that we don't have a choice but to respond. Mm -hmm. And that's what the worst effects of the climate emergency will also show. So I think it's, it's, it just goes to show that things can get done very quickly in government when they feel like they have to. So we have to make sure they feel like they have to on all the issues that we care about. And the local authority, have you been making representations to them? Because um, there is this fund that is available where, which they could keep going in order to sort of end homelessness completely. When we, look at, when we look at the experiences of local authorities like Coventry, we have to take into account that their budgets have been slashed to the bone mm. by central government. And that's over the past 11 years now. Mm. And even then, Coventry City Council has been balancing its budgets, has been making sure that key services stay despite money from central government mm. shrinking, 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 and still they're being told, you still have to do this on a statutory basis. It's incredibly difficult. I don't envy their jobs yeah. at all. But I think when we're focusing on some of the legitimate criticisms mm -hmm. of local authority delivery as well, we have to remember that central government plays such a huge part in this and we've seen other funds by the government like the local towns fund mm -hmm. where actually conservative MPs have benefited from funds that should be given to more deprived areas but because they're Tories and they're able there's some dodgy stuff going on there um, and it's not right because their funding should be given based on deprivation levels not because of the the color of your badge when you're running for election whether it's red or blue that's not the way it should work in a functioning democracy so I think um, you know there, there is a lot more that needs to be done and I think central government funding is a huge problem here yeah there's there's also an issue that um sometimes is not always highlighted. So some people who work in the NHS, who are not born in this country, who've, who've come to help, on their visas have, have no recourse to public funds. Is that a sustainable position for, to invite people over to the country to come and work as nurses, as doctors, but to have a no recourse to public funds provision? I think that is incredibly cruel. Um, it, it, it sends a certain message to people that are coming to serve within our NHS mm. and serve our communities. But we also have a prime minister who didn't know what no recourse to public funds is. Mm. And I'm not sure he actually knows now um, mm. because when Stephen Timms brought it up, he was just confused that mm. you could have a situation where people aren't able to access any kinds of benefits, even if they're working or, you know, if they're working in the NHS even. So mm -hmm. I think the fact that there are people within senior government, literally the Prime Minister, who doesn't realise that this is affecting people, yeah. tells you everything. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's very difficult and it's something that must be repeated, that must be pointed out, because when, if people come to a country to contribute, yeah. um, there is an obligation there to say that there must be a safety net for, for those people because they've come to help. 
Um, I think there should be a safety net for everyone mm. um, because I feel like you know everyone deserves to know that they will be protected by the state. Um, but I think you know the fact that there is this gap and the fact that people are constantly falling through it mm. and that it's still not being addressed, the fact that the right to work is, is something that we're still fighting for. Um, you know, there are healthcare charges that exist that also affect people who work within the NHS, yeah. which is, is just mind blowing and, and shocking. Um, all of these things are things that really, if we were to function with a, a policy that centered people's humanity, you just wouldn't have. Yeah. Let's talk about key workers, um, but in the context of of initially class, do you think there's a class bar to, um, to to upward mobility in society? Because if you if you look at who the key workers are, they're disproportionately black or Asian um, people who've migrated to the country. Is there is there a bar to social mobility in the country? I think race and class are inextricably linked, especially when you look at key workers. The people who didn't have the privilege, like me and others, of working from home, who literally had to go because go to work because they work in supermarkets, or they are delivery drivers, or they're taxi drivers, or they're bus drivers, or they work in hospitality, and, and so forth. They were predominantly from black and Asian backgrounds, mm. uh, or minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, and when I early on spoke about this, and I highlighted how um, the coronavirus in particular within the NHS and other areas, the people who were dying mm -hmm. were disproportionately from black, Asian, ethnic minority backgrounds. People said to me, whoa, 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 are you saying that the, the virus is racist? Mm. And no, I'm saying that we live in a society where racism exists mm. and this virus thrives on it. It thrives on inequality. It, it feeds on these existing inequalities that exist within our society. And over time, I guess the government has come to realize that this is something that is happening and hasn't done anything about it. Surprise, surprise. Um, but in, we, our society is obviously very unequal. And that's why when it came to making sure that there was enough PPE, that people have sick pay, even now, you know, 95 pounds a week, one of the lowest rates of sick pay in Europe is what we're dealing with. How can you expect people to not have to go to work when you're not even giving them the safety net that we're talking about to stay at home and protect themselves and protect others? Mm. So, of course, in the UK, you know, class is, is a huge thing. It shapes society and, and in that is, is obviously a very strong racial component. Um, the working class is diverse. Mm -hmm. And that's why whenever people talk about the white working class and I say what issues affect the white working class and they'll mention housing, schooling, they'll mention, you know, local transport, uh, concerns about the future, good quality jobs. That also affects the black working class, the Asian working class, because the working class is the working class. And any kind of attempts to divide us, I think, have to be shut down. Yeah, and, and what impact do you think COVID has had on, on students? Devastating. Co Coventry has, has Devastating a very large student population. The, the, the conversations I've had with young people, even children in secondary school, primary school, about their mental health, 
and how difficult the pandemic has been, how often they are in overcrowded homes, university students who haven't had enough support, um, who have been treated disgracefully by both their universities and the government being told, hey, you're gonna have a normal university experience when everyone knew that wasn't the case and it was literally to take their money to pay rent and for their tuition, so universities and their flawed model sustains itself, it's unsustainable. But they were literally put in these unsafe conditions. They were locked up in their accommodation. In Manchester, we saw gates put up, you know, to lock students in. When they could have just been told the truth that, hey, you know, pandemic, everything is gonna be slightly different this year, we'll invest um, you know, in mental health support, we'll, we'll make sure that we, we get the best kind of digital access for all of our students. Yeah. Let's focus on that and then maybe, you know, in, in a few months, d depending on how we deal with the pandemic, we can have some degree of like the normal interactions that you're used to. Sold them a dream that was never going to be fulfilled. And, you know, there's loads of people who are meant to have the best times of their lives at university who are just thinking, that was not a great experience. And we already have a, a mental health crisis in this country. Yeah. NHS waiting lists for mental health support have skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. We know there are real concerns about people who are experiencing eating disorders or uh, you know, uh, people who um, have autism and are, are waiting to be assessed. There's a multitude of issues and they've worsened across the pan during the, the course of the pandemic. And the government, you know, talks a good talk about putting funding, but unless we have a school counselor in every school, unless we're really addressing the mental um, health waiting lists, unless we've got culturally sensitive mental health support, yeah. then this is not a problem that's going to go anywhere soon. So anyway, what will soon. you be advocating? Because um, most students haven't been able to come to, for example, to Coventry's university campus to come and have lessons in person, will, will you be advocating that they get some refund of some sort? You Earlier on, you were talking about how your student debt is over 40K. Um, what, what do you think should happen there? I support calls for university students to be reimbursed, uh, their tuition fees, their rent, but I also believe that shouldn't be for this year. I think it should be for next year every year and I think we should really have serious questions about student debt as well because there people talk about you know you only pay off your student debt when you've earned a certain amount but when you look at how that disproportionately affects working class kids there are wealthier kids whose parents and others are able to pay their tuition fees so they don't have that extra form of tax on on their earnings that they're able imagine if you're just able to save yeah. You can, you know, you, you, maybe you, you'll put a, a deposit on a house or something. We have the lowest number of home ownerships amongst, you know, young people. Why is that? Yeah. Um, so all of these things, I think, come back to the, the fundamental point that I'm trying to make is that I believe in education um, as a public good. I think it should be free for everyone from cradle to grave. And there's amazing things that other countries do where, you know, no matter how old you are, you can access education. And I think that also is linked and I know I feel like I keep coming back to the climate emergency but the climate emergency when we look at the kind of jobs we need in the future the way we need to retrain workers in certain areas we don't have an education framework I don't think that's strong enough and at the scale to really retrain people and create those 
um, those skills and, and that experience that we really need. And I think um, education is something that every government fiddles with when they come into power. But I feel like the way our education system treats students, but also the way it treats academics, the conversations I've had with academics at Warwick and Coventry, and the way that, because at the end of the day, a student's learning conditions are a, a lecturer's working conditions or you know an academic's uh, working conditions, they're inextricably, inextricably linked. And I think that's why we, we have to have this conversation about the way, how are universities run, who are they run for, how are we funding them, and so forth, and it, it, it's a, we could have another discussion on that yeah. altogether. No, do you, do you think there's a prospect that green jobs will come to Coventry? Absolutely, I think there's huge um, investments already being made. We've got the, the the very light rail. We've got hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, um, the gigafactory proposal um, that is going through the process at the moment. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of amazing work that's in the pipeline and Coventry is so special because it has Coventry University, Warwick University, it has a whole kind of ecology of organizations, individuals and specialists who know their stuff when it comes to the climate emergency and the kind of jobs and the kind of solutions we need, you know, because we're not, we're not just talking about electric cars, we have to be thinking about solar panels on every house, we need to be thinking about wind turbines, we need to be thinking about public transport, which should be free, yeah. period. Um, if you want people to not drive, give them good quality public transport when they know their bus is going to arrive when it says it's going to arrive, um, and, and good quality trains and things like that, um, and, and make it free, make it, because th those are the kind of things that will make, would you know when people talk about climate change, I don't think they articulate it in a way where you can describe to someone this is how your life will change. Yeah. If we talk about insulating every home, if we talk about solar panels, if we talk about amazing green spaces, if we talk about the fact that you don't have to work as many hours as you do but your income is not going to be affected because furlough has shown that the government can step in. Yeah. If we're able to articulate it in a way people can see how it will change their lives, then I think we're on a game changer. No, it's been a really fascinating conversation with you, Zara. Um, thank you so much for coming. We're going to open this up to the audience now, so you can have your say and <laughs> ask some hard questions if you'd Harder like Harder than what you've asked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, if you just show by raising your hands, and we'll get a microphone over to you. I think Luke has arranged that. Don't be shy. Who wants to go first? Yes, the lady at the back. Hi, and um, so you talked about some problems that you found with how the government has handled students um, and reflux and stuff like that. I was just wondering if you think there's any positives that the university has done for students and for the city of Having conversations with um, staff members and also university senior management and how they've made additional pots of funding available for students who have been affected by loss of income, whether it's their part-time jobs, I think is excellent. That's been done at Coventry. How universities have made um, assessments slightly more flexible, so they've been more accommodating in terms of um, students sending their, their work. Um, so I think those things are really positive, but I think the way students have been 
told to come into accommodation um, and literally for their rent, I think is just not fair. But there are definitely pros and I think there are those things that we should carry on, whether, you know, we, outside of the context of a pandemic as well, that we should always have those hardship funds. We should always be investing in mental health. And I think universities have done a lot in extra mental health support because um, their students are able to, to navigate that system rather than going through the NHS where there's already a huge waiting list. So I think those are incredible positives. So I think the fact that um, in our curriculum we don't really talk about sustainability at all and that's very early on within the education system I think that needs to be addressed and I think there's wider conversations about the curriculum how it doesn't incorporate uh, black history how it doesn't incorporate LGBT plus history how it doesn't incorporate working class history and trade union history so I think the curriculum is, is a major major point but when I think um, about what we can do I think education takes place in so many settings and it's not always conventional. There's education that takes place in our community centers, in our religious spaces of worship, and all of those places are equally valuable. But when I think of, for example, I recently watched um, a, a something on BBC where they were actually in China and it was um, a group of actors, I mean, the name just es escapes me, but they were thinking about retirement and where they'd go. And they went to Chengdu, which I visited many, many um, years ago. Um, and, and they were able to find this college which was catering towards retired people and their interests and they could learn another language or they could do theatre or they could do anything. And those jobs, you know, education jobs are, are green jobs um, and jobs within the care service are green jobs. They're the most greenest, um, you know, people who are care workers. And I think if we're able to invest in looking at what works elsewhere, taking ideas that have worked in indigenous communities that have worked in communities in, in you know, the global south, really build a system that is just catered towards the love of ed education, um, but as well as, as training. I think training is a really important component, but there's loads of people who um, would wanna go back into university or would wanna go back into college who don't know how to do it because there's no real process and they might, you know, go, they might figure it out, but I think it's incredibly complicated and I don't think um, we invest a lot in it. I think there's a lot to look at. I mean, I haven't really deeped it on, on, on a level that maybe I should, but I think there's a lot of good examples that we can learn from. And I think politicians in particular don't have the answers. I think that's the point that I'm trying to make, that when we think about what we can do differently, it literally has to come from communities. And in my background as a community organizer, one of the most powerful things I saw was you ask the questions to people who know that area the best, education providers, people who want to seek education, you know, people who want to create these clean, green jobs. 
and then you take those ideas and you implement them but the ideas exist they're not going to be you're not reinventing you're not reinventing the wheel at all they're there and we just have to to find a, something that works I'm not sure that answered it but <laughs> <laughs> you had a good go at that i did have a good go um, so hand there so my question for you is what advice would you give young people of color that don't let anyone think that you're not good enough. I think um, we all think of politicians of, you know, as people who come from a certain background who talk in a certain way. And I think it's really important that when we think about who can be a politician. I think it should be anyone who has a desire to make positive change. And one thing that I've heard a lot of in my short time in, in politics, in, in traditional politics, I've been in politics for a very long time, is you don't have enough life experience. And we were talking about this earlier, that the kind of life experience certain people in politics value. So if I had a background in investment banking, I think I would be seen in a different way. But I have the experience in retail, in community organizing, working in the charity sector, coming through the student movement, and therefore I'm seen in a particular light, as well as my age, as well as my gender, as well as my race, as well as my religious background. Um, so I think I've had to do a lot of unlearning, um, and because there's, there's loads of messages in society that you don't belong there. And Parliament itself tells me that daily. It tells me that in the fact that out of all the portraits, and Parliament has many, many portraits across its estate, there are more portraits with horses in them than there are of women, let alone black or brown women. I, I think that's a completely, we're not even going there. Um, out of the nine canteens on, ca um, on campus, uh, out of the nine canteens on the parliamentary estate, not a single one provides halal or kosher food. So what is that telling you? Um, and, and all of these things, that, that, that is the institution telling you that, hey, it wasn't really built for you. But I always say that I like being uncomfortable there because if I get comfortable, then we've got a problem. Um, as long as I'm there, like knowing that I'm here because uh, this place needs to change and it also needs to serve the people that it's supposed to represent, then that's what I'll keep doing. But there needs to be more of us and we shouldn't just be coming from a certain background i think we bring so much experience whether you know whether that's through you know people i get young people in particular asking me do i have to study politics no no you don't you don't even need to have formal education you everyone has experience that they bring whether you know you're a carer whether you're um, you know, you're a recent migrant to the country, whether you work in the NHS, all of these things. And for politics to be truly accessible, you know, we need to be inclusive of everyone. And I think it's not nowhere there, nowhere near there yet. I mean, Parliament itself, when, you, when I think of it from a disability pers perspective, if you were in a wheelchair, how are you going to be in the chamber? The chamber doesn't even... All of those things, like, if, if, it's literally not built for people... Um, who, who come from underrepresented communities. I mean, they're underrepresented for that reason, but so much needs to change. Mm. There's a hand behind you. Um, obviously, we're here as a part of Refugee Week, and having spoken to, uh, listened to previous editions of the podcast, there's um, obviously big flaws in the 
that's a, a very difficult question. I think I would um, provide every single undocumented person with documentation to be able to access every single agency, everything that they need. So um, I think some people would call it an amnesty. I think amnesty means it's a short kind of um, time frame of it, but I think that should be a standard policy. There should be a way for every single person to be able to access um, the benefits that come with citizenship. So it doesn't matter for how long you've been here, you should be able to have the full rights that every single person enjoys. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no way. No way. Um, when, when I think of Margaret Thatcher and people talk about her being like some inspirational icon, I'm just like, she destroyed mining communities across the country. She harmed, you know, like the Margaret Thatcher milk snatcher. I mean, I wasn't around during her time, but I've heard some stuff and she wasn't a very good person. So... <laughs> I kind of use that as, as the foundation. But, you know, when people talk about her, you know, first woman prime minister, I think she speaks to the limitations of representation politics. Because I don't think, you know, our liberation, our collective liberation um, is not going to be solved by one person. And I think, you know, when we think of um, Theresa May after her second woman prime minister, people were like, and Barack Obama, you know, first black US president, people were like, oh, racism over. Uh, no, that's not quite what happened. Deportations um, increased massively under Obama when we think of the droning of Yemen and other places and, and the Black Lives Matter movement, which erupted during his time and after, tells you that actually we're, we're, we're miles away from racial equality or anything of, of that nature. Equally, in the UK, the policies that we saw under Theresa May, um, women's refugees being closed, um, she ushered in austerity as well, which disproportionately affects women. It, and, and, you know, even people try to... I don't think they make the argument so much with Preeti Patel, but again, this is an Asian woman who is in a very powerful position, but the policies she is pushing through is harming people uh, from all communities, including her own. So we need to be looking at the politics rather than the person. And while representation plays a, a really important part because you can't be what you don't see, I think we have to move beyond that if we're really going to talk about how we're going to liberate ourselves. Uh, so when I think about who inspires me and, and why I present myself in the way that I do? I think that's a really good question. Um, when I think of who I'm inspired by, 
I think about my time learning about people like Martin Luther King, like Malcolm X. Malcolm X's autobiography changed my world. Like, I think he was absolutely incredible and obviously lives that were cut very short before they really were able to show their true power and bringing communities together, working class communities. I recently watched Judas and the Black Messiah about Fred Hampton and the work that he was doing in the US bringing working class communities, white working class communities, Latino working class communities, black working class communities, addressing structural problems like food poverty. Those are the, the kind of inspirations that I take, but in my life, I think it's been the women that I've been in the movement with. So coming through the student movement, building a strong network of women, um, and you know, always having that space to fall back into. One of the women that I was actually elected with in 2019, her name is Belle Rubiro Adi. She's the Labour MP for Streatham. Um, I know her from the student movement. She was a black students officer at NUS. We both got elected together, and it's just beautiful to just be able to, to talk to her and, and, and other women as well. And I think they are such an important safety net. Um, and I think I, I don't know where I get my leadership style from. I'm literally just making it up as I go along. I'm winging it. I'm just doing me because I don't know anything else. Hmm. That's it. You're being authentic. I'm trying to be. <laughs> Brilliant. There's a hand over there. Hand over there. office literally tries to help every single person that gets in touch with us in any way that we can uh, so if people are scared about their immigration status we always try to make sure that we center that and not do anything that compromises their safety or anything um, so we will always work with you know, there's some MPs who who have a policy of they won't work on immigration cases and I've learned this or they won't work on housing cases or something like that which again blows my mind um, because you should be working on every single case and you should be trying to help every single person that gets in touch with you but maybe I'm a new MP and I'm just doing things um, in a different way it should be the way it should be the only way um, but in terms of the, the, the way you can make representations I think it's important to use Parliament to highlight those stories and give those stories the, the, the illustration and the colour to, to, to show that this is not a stat, this is a person who um, you know, is loved, um, is part of a community, who uh, enriches society, um, and, but equally knowing that that change that we seek is not going to come with this government who has shown its intentions when it comes to 
immigration policy when it comes to refugees and migrants and um, knowing that we have to build, we have to keep building because there will be a time where this government, hopefully, fingers crossed, changes and that maybe then it will usher in a more progressive way of looking at um, immigration and, and, and people in our communities. But I think I'm under no illusions of what is achievable with this government. But equally, knowing that you don't just sit back and then let them do the worst, you fight back, but you build, build, build. Um, so you're winning the arguments elsewhere until, because politicians very often, you know, there's loads of politicians who, who, who focus solely on like focus groups and polling. So we need to do the work, right, to change the polls rather than react to the polls. But we also need to um, organize to, if we, if we don't like the way a government is operating or if we don't like the way politicians are working, then we should be organizing to change them democratically, get rid of them because that's what the political system should be. If it functions, that's what you should be able to do. So I think, you know, organizing in many different ways within winning the arguments within our workplaces and our trade unions, winning the argument within political parties to make sure that their manifestos are what we want them to be. And having those difficult conversations with family and friends who might be reading The Sun, The Daily Mail, having a certain perspective on, 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 on people who are undocumented, um, and, and building on from there. No. Don't read the sun, don't read the daily mail. <laughs> it's really in the same line as the previous question. Um, what's your views about immigrants and refugees not having the right to vote, not even in general election or local election? How can you expect people integrated in society that they're not even represented or their opinion doesn't matter? We pay taxes, contribute to this society, but we don't even have a say how that tax is spent. I, I think it's wrong and I think people talk about votes at 16 which I think are right and important but there are so many people in our communities who don't have the vote. You know, you can easily give the right to vote to homeless people if you can just register them to an address which allows them to access other, other agencies and other benefits. And when you've got people who are working who have national insurance numbers and still don't have the right to vote, it speaks to a political system that just doesn't want everyone to be treated equally. And the way, I know I, I keep coming back to this government, but the, the kind of stuff they're pushing through with voter ID stuff, even the current enfranchised population is about to be heavily impacted by voter ID. The poorest in our communities, you know, disabled people, trans people, people who don't have any photo ID. Um, so I think there is a huge... Um, a fight on, on voter ID and I think we also need to be having the conversation because I, I don't think people really think about people who don't have a vote, people who are working with them, people who are living next to them and actually as a lot of Labour Party activists when we're knocking on doors and we've got our sheets and then someone's like oh yeah I don't have the right to vote I think that's when people, it might be the first time that they come across the fact that there are people in society who don't and I think you know th those are those are fights that need to be had because we talk about women winning the right to vote, and we think then it was done. Like, hey, it's all done now, but it's not. <laughs> it's really not. So j just on the point about the vaccine, I think um, I've, I've taken it. I've 
got loads of friends and family members who have taken it and, and they're fine. They have been medically tested, but I completely understand people's concerns about it. And I've highlighted this in Parliament that the history of medicine in this country and across the world, um, especially how it's affected black people, has meant that there is a lot of mistrust. Um, but it's really important um, just to emphasize that these, these are scientifically, you know, medically safe vaccines and... Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I literally. Yeah, if you let her finish, the answer, yeah. I mean, no, no, no. Um, I would strongly recommend everyone to take the vaccine if they can, if they get um, the opportunity to. Um, on, on the points about your experiences and and how you know, the, not wanting to be here, I think that speaks to the experience of a lot of people who have experienced racism, uh, a lack of opportunities. A uh, kind of messaging that you don't really belong here is something I relate to. I remember growing up and thinking at some point in secondary school, I don't feel like I belong here and I couldn't pin that on anything. But, um, you know, growing under the shadows of the war on terror, I was definitely getting some messaging from politicians that maybe you, you, you're not British enough or, or so forth. And there's been a lot of unpacking that I've done there. But I think the question that you ask about what we can do when racism is, is still such um, a pervasive societal ill is, is a really important question. And I think it, it sounds, it's, it's, it's nothing that you haven't heard before, but I think the reason why I'm so committed to the fight against racism is having a political understanding that my liberation is connected to the liberation of other people. That as a young Asian Muslim girl, I am not truly free unless black people are free, unless LGBT people are free, unless disabled people are free. And that's because there's a system that is exploiting us all and that's white supremacy. And I think that also exploits white people and working class white people, all of us, we are allies in this fight together. And I think when we recognize that common shared oppression that we all have, and we see it in things like, I saw, you know, I've, I've been going to protests against death in police custody for the past decade. And the recent protests that we've seen over the past few summers around Black Lives Matter, a young, diverse, diverse across race, diverse, diverse across ages, diverse across, across ge geographies in this country, in places where there aren't ethnic minority communities and they were having strong BLM protests. I think that speaks to a, a, a greater, I guess, conscious raising that's taken place. Yeah. And I think that unless we have hope that things will change, I think it's quite easy and, you know, to, to fall into this process of um, despair. And I've had to kind of um, stop myself from, from, from experiencing that myself because I genuinely believe that when we all come together, there is so much power in changing things. And that's why the forces that be, whether it's in politics or the media, invest billions in trying to make us all divided and hate on each other. And when we come together, whether it's you know, in, in demonstrations or whether we come together um, in events like this, there's, there's a power that can be harnessed, and I think we all have to be having those conversations with our family members when they're saying things that are, you know, homophobic, or they're saying things that are, you know, um, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, any of those, you know, um, forms of discrimination that we're, we're doing that work, that hard work, those difficult conversations, but also building coalitions, recognizing that, you know, you're great at this thing, 
I know this person, let's connect, let's work on this together, knowing that um, everything that we're doing, it's not just, you know, you, you're not expected to do the Lord's work by yourself. There are loads of people, loads of people across the world who are doing important work. When I think about, for example, the recent Palestine um, marches that have been taking place, and recognizing the UK's complicity in what's happening in regions across the world because of colonialism, but knowing that things can change and that we can be agents of change, knowing that our um, government is licensing arms um, and there are companies in the UK that are building weapons that are then killing Palestinian children and then there isn't any accountability, then seeing people in France making that same argument and protesting, people in um, you know Syria, people in America, people in Canada, people in New Zealand, and recognizing that we are all part of this global community that wants to see peace and justice. I think that's what you, you have to hold on to, because otherwise there's so much um, grief, there's so much negativity, there's so much pain and sorrow and death in the world that it can become so consuming. So I think you have to hold on to the good, and I think you have to hold on in believing that in the innate goodness of people and that history shows that um, you know the the arc towards justice is long but you're gonna get there and you know believing in that wholeheartedly because you have to you have to believe that things will change yeah. on that note <laughs> that uh, that impassioned plea um, it's been a pleasure hosting you here today Zara and I uh, Wish you a lot of success in the rest of your term. Thank you. Um, you're in a marginal seat. 401, every 401 vote matter. Don't majority. let anyone tell you your vote doesn't matter because I got elected with 401 votes. Yeah, so all the best <laughs> and, and thank you so much. And thank you to this audience. Thank for, you, for everyone. That. Thank you. I'll still be prized. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at CARAGCoventry. So until the next episode of Still Your Eyes, thanks for joining us and goodbye.